All right, in just a moment, I'm going to read for us uh, and continue the, the reading, kind of continue it, but there's a little bit of an interruption, obviously. I'm going to continue reading from 1 Samuel chapter uh, 29, which is printed in your bulletins. Now, remember that obviously this account, this, this thing that I'm reading right now, it, it could look like it's right together, that they're right up against one another, but they're interrupted not merely by the fact that I've put them in two readings and have some of the service in between them right now, but they're interrupted in the story itself by the insertion of the narrative that we looked at last week, which is uh, Saul and his consulting with Samuel through the medium at Endor. So we've got this David story of he's gone into Philistia seeking refuge there. We get right up to the point where David is confronted with an awful dilemma, which is where we left off uh, in, in the first two verses of chapter 28. And then our, our, our author breaks off right at that point to give us the account of Saul. Now, just this is interesting, and you, you can't really see it unless you play with the geography here a little bit. The, the chapters 27 and 29 that I'm reading for us this morning actually take place chronologically before 28. And you can see that if you look at the geography that's going on here. So 28, the medium of Endor, episode happens after this, but our author has taken it and put it right here in the middle of this story. Now, in one sense, that's nice because it builds up a little bit of suspense as you're reading. You're, you're expecting, how is David going to get out of this? And then you turn right to Saul uh, as you are looking for the answer to that question. But, but it's not just for the sake of suspense that this is done. It's also to allow us to kind of look at both of these men. We're, we're looking at a very similar situation. The, the enemy, or at least the, the enemy that's in front of them, the Philistines, is confronting both of them. And by layering it like this, or by paneling it like this, we're invited to kind of compare and contrast between the two guys. That's what's going on here. Look at Saul, and then look at David, particularly men as we're coming to the end and we're seeing, respectively, uh, the fall and rise of these men, the fall of Saul and the ascension of David to the throne of Israel. Okay, with that, let me read them for us, uh, chapter 29 of 1 Samuel. It's not very long. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow re reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David? of whom they sing to one another in dances. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. 
Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong with you from in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, what have I done? What have, I, what have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. In the shadow of the Almighty, let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of dwelling in your shadow. Your hand upon us, your hand providing for us shade and cover, even when we don't realize what is happening and what is taking place. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray as we look at this text today, not perhaps as straightforward as a text from Ephesians or Romans, but your word inspired for your people we pray that you would help us to understand it well and apply it to our lives, our situations, our families, our church well also. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what do you think? Uh, what think ye of David in the episode that is before us today? How do you read it? How do you hear this? How do we interpret his heart, his decisions that he makes, the words that he speaks along the way, the actions that he takes in the chapters that are before us. What do you think? What do you think about it? What, what does our inspired author think about David in this setting? What does God think about David in this event? As you have heard it, there is no statement at the end of this story that says, this is the moral of the story. Here it is. This, this is what you are to understand, glean from this as the people of God. There's, there's no moral at the end of it, and, and that makes it a little bit difficult, but it also kind of invites us to think about it. It invites us as the readers, whether we were ancient readers of this text or as we are now reading this text, it invites us to use our wisdom, our thoughts, and engage ourselves in this scenario and examine it and think about what is being presented to us. After David had spared Saul's life, and I'll reference back to that a couple of times, in uh, the sermon today. But after David had spared Saul's life, Saul declared to him, you, David, are more righteous than I. Remember that? Saul says, you're more righteous than I. And, and I reminded us then 
that he's kind of echoing old scriptural words there. Those are the words that Judah said of Tamar. She's more righteous than I am. But here's the question. Does that still hold? In that circumstance, David said, you, you are more righteous than I am. Does it still hold in this situation here? Now, we are naturally inclined and predisposed to think the best of David, to put the best explanation we possibly can on his actions, even when those actions may be questionable to us. We want, and I think we want appropriately, so don't hear me disparaging this, I think we want appropriately our biblical heroes, our biblical leaders, our leaders, our Christian leaders for that matter, to stand, to be those who are worthy of the stature that they have attained, worthy of our admiration, our emulation, our imitation of them, and I think that's okay. We understand, we get it, that when we're talking about anyone, and biblical heroes now we include in this list, when we're talking about anyone, we understand they're not perfect, and that's never what we're trying to say about a particular person. But nevertheless, we, we want a certain standard from them. We expect a certain standard, and that is, I think, as it should be. Now, if, as I have posited here, our writer, by kind of paneling between David and Saul, if, if he's putting them before us, he's in fact inviting us to compare and contrast between them, then the question becomes, if that's what's being done here, well, what do we say? How do you respond to these episodes as we've seen them this week and last week in particular? Now, in order to, to answer that, we're going to wrestle with that question because we've kind of got to wrestle with that question about what is this text about so that we can then apply this text. So let's, let's try and answer the question first of all by a very basic outline that's going to take us through the material for, before us. One, we'll look at David's decisions and his actions. Two, we'll look at David's dire straits that he ends up in as a result of that. And three, we'll look at God's deliverance, David's deliverance out of this situation. So let's begin where the text begins. That is to say, for us today, in the first verse of chapter 27, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hands. David turns to Philistia for deliverance. Let, let that settle for just a moment, because you need to hear the thought process that is going on in David here and go, wait a minute, question question about this, aren't these guys the enemy? You know, in movies, uh, if you watch movies, the, the action heroes can go through incredible trauma and stress and loss and pain. And, and then at the end of the movie or at the end of the scene, they can give it a quip and they can kiss or not kiss the girl and they can move on from whatever they've just endured, however horrific it was, apparently unaffected by all of it. They can just kind of skate on to the next thing, happy and strong and ready to face the next battle. Well, in real life, right, it's not like that. 
We know it's not like that. We, we, we've begun to understand more about trauma than we have in the past. We understand things that soldiers go through, PTSD, and that can apply to people who are in all sorts of difficult, traumatic situations. David's thinking here seems to manifest some of that as well. The wear and tear is kind of showing on David. He's been on the run for a long time now with his life hanging by a thread, if you will. I mean, right before this, and I know I didn't read it for us now, but let me just read it. Right before this, chapter 26, is that account where Saul has been put into his hand. David arranged the circumstances of it. And it kind of concludes with David saying, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today. I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul responds with, blessed are you, my son. But when we look at that, we, we kind of read those words, and it sounds courageous, and it sounds faithful to us. When we hear David saying that in this particular situation, David has seen God taking care of him in a really dangerous situation, in a number of really dangerous situations. In other words, David and we as readers, we've seen God protect David in and around Judah and Israel even when even when Saul was pursuing him in exactly those places. Saul was after him, but God delivered him. David knows the promises of God. We know the promises of God. Even Saul knows the promises of God. David is going to be the king. Saul is not going to get to him. No matter what it may look like, no matter how dire the circumstance may be, God has been protecting him, God will protect him, and the promise from God is, David, you're going to be the king. But the wear and tear has taken a toll on him, and David's heart and mind are not thinking clearly, and so off he goes again to Philistia. And this is the second time, if you'll recall it, he went uh, once before, back in chapter 21, where he feigned madness. Saul was after him and he feigned madness in Philistia so that they wouldn't harm him when he was there. So in summary of this chapter, and, and here we need to, to summarize a little bit, David and his men become a mercenary force for Achish. And David requests a city that is far enough away from the capital city that Achish and company won't be able to watch exactly what he's doing. They won't be able to see the specifics of, he's do, of what he's doing. And Achish thinks David is then busy raiding Judean towns because that's what David tells him. Achish thinks that he's actually in Achish's service in what he is doing. David is actually, though, raiding old enemies of Israel while bringing a portion of the spoil back to Achish. Achish doesn't ask too many questions about this, right? You, you don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth? Achish is not asking a lot of questions, but he's, he's basically accepting what David has said. The duplicity of David fools him. Now, we could spend some time examining this duplicity of David uh, as, uh, as in contrast to the clear commands for truth and truth in speaking that are found in the Word of God. But we kind of did that 
when we were back in chapter 21 and we looked at the words that David said to the priest and we also looked at the words and the actions that he took when he was in Philistia that first time. Instead, what I'd like to do is, is look at what I think is a little bit of a deeper um, and a more significant issue in this particular text. If, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 27, there we read that when David made his raids, he would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom during his time when he was in Philistia. And we've got to take a look at this and ask ourselves some questions about it. We recall, if you've been here for a number of years, we recall that in the book of Joshua, God sometimes instructed his people to execute his terrible wrath against sin and against the sinfulness of mankind by instructing judgment to be leveled against an entire city, a town, a populace, all of the property of that particular place. And we even saw that same idea in Samuel. If you'll recall, that was the command that God gave to Saul through Samuel with respect to the Amalekites. Wipe them out. Wipe out everything, including the property that belonged to them. This was called, or is called scripturally, the ban. Uh, it, it's where God says, devote it to destruction. But it's only used, and it's only to be enacted at the specific and the explicit command of God. David employs it here in its brutality, but without apparent sanction from God. And our author kind of brings that to our attention. Our, our, our author kind of brings up this episode to say, this is what David was doing. Take a look at what he was doing here. And the author kind of steps back and holds it right out there. Says, what do we think of this? Now, the author could have said something very clearly and very quickly. He, he could have said, as had been decreed by the Lord. Or he could have said, as the prophet instructed David. But that's not what's said. The reason that is given explicitly in this text as to why David killed all of the men and all of the women in a particular place was, we'll say it in our language, to cover his tracks. That's why he did it. He killed everybody in a place so that nobody could go back and tell Achish what was going on. He did it to protect himself and to protect his men. That was why he did it. David is a man who has shed much blood on the earth. And there's no record here. There's no record. I, I, I hope you caught this. In 27 and 29, there is no record of David seeking the Lord, seeking the prophet, seeking the priest for any of the actions that he is taking here. In, in the next chapter, or what we looked at last week, Saul is thwarted by the lack of a word from God. He tries, he can't get access to God. David has access to God. And we'll see it in the next chapter 
because there's a turn that happens in the very next chapter. It won't be next week for us, but it'll be the week after that that we'll look at it because we'll do the ordination uh, next week. But we'll see that David still has access to God that he can avail himself of, but he does not use it. We get the impression that for these 16 months in the decision to go into Philistia and in the actions that he takes while he's there, he does not avail himself of that. We read nothing about it. And so I think, and not just I think, but others think as well, that our writer here is allowing us to understand David and his difficulties. But the silence with respect to the will of God, the approbation of God, that silence is deafening. It speaks. Ralph Davis, I've quoted him a number of times throughout this study in 1 Samuel because I, I love his, his commentary so much. But he warns us. He says, listen, people of God, you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful about taking cheap shots at David. And it's true, right? It's easy for us. It's easy for any of us to take cheap shots at other people with respect to their sin. To point it out, to show us to that particular sin, not necessarily to someone else, but at least in our hearts or maybe to a close friend or maybe to a spouse, to point out someone else's sin. We're good at that. But without overdoing it, we nevertheless have to look at these texts and look at these, these dubious decisions that David makes. We have, to, we have to consider the questionable words that come out of his mouth and the bloody reality of what is described before us. David's decision and actions. Now, let me just move on in this little outline that's helping us to understand the text. And with the next two, I can be really brief. Needed to, explain, needed to go into that first one a little bit more. But briefly then, we look then at David's dire straits. Now, now this scheme of David's worked apparently for 16 months, right? Not, that's what we read here in this text. That it worked for 16 months until, as we would have expected, the Philistines go to war against Israel, right? <laughs> that's what happens with, between the Philistines and Israel. They go to war with each other periodically. And, and I don't know if it caught David unaware that this was taking place, but that's the dire straits that he gets into in chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gather their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish says, listen, I want my mercenary force with me. You guys are pretty good. You've brought me all these spoils over the course of the last 16 months. You're, you're really good. You're a stench to your people. I want you fighting with me in this battle that is before us. And so David is going to be in the midst of the Philistine army having to fight as king-elect. And I say king-elect, king-elect of God. God has elected him to be king against the people over whom he will be king and should be shepherd. That's a tough spot to be in. That's a really hard spot to be in. David is boxed in. There's no apparent way out of this. David is, is, is hemmed in on every side and he cannot, and this is the point that our writer is taking us to, there's no way to extricate himself from this. He's in the midst of the armies of the Philistines and they're going up against the armies of Saul and the Israelite who want his life as well. And that's where we find David. He is a bird in a cage. 
in a fowler's net, and there is no escape for him. The escape that he thought was an escape, he thought Philistia. That's the escape. That's the, that's the escape route. That's the place of refuge, and now that is exposed as a cage. You thought you were safe there, David. You thought you were free there, David. But no, you're caught as a bird in a cage. And the story breaks off at this point to show us Saul. So both of these men, and we could do the exact same outline with both of them, both of these men are in an impossible situation. They're in dire respect, in dire straits with respect to their personhood, with respect to their families, uh, those who follow them, and the calling that God has given to them. Neither of them, neither David nor Saul at this point, is exhibiting particularly admirable uh, faithfulness or righteousness here in this situation. But one will be guarded and one will be cut off. So we move then to 29 here and uh, briefly David's deliverance. We can call this deliverance the great escape as long as we understand the great escape was uh, engineered here and orchestrated by God himself. David was ready, and here I'm just using kind of the imagery from Psalm 124 that was our call to worship. David was ready to be swallowed down, whole, rolled over, chewed up when he escaped like a bird. Please note that we do not read anywhere in this text a cry for deliverance. We don't see a prayer that goes up from David, Lord, I'm surrounded by my enemies. Would you please get me out? of this. Now David prays that at other times, right? We know the Psalms. It's all over the Psalms, but not here. In fact, the only one who even mentions God, the Lord Yahweh, in, in, in what I just read for us, the only one who mentions God or Yahweh is, go figure, Achish. Achish is the only one who talks about Yahweh as Yahweh lives. You're, you're like an angel of God before me. So they have their military parade, the lords of the Philistines. Haven't forgotten the old song that everybody learned. And uh, even if Achish seems to have forgotten that song, they remember the song and how it goes. Saul killed his thousands and David his ten thousands and they want no part of him. And then there's this decidedly odd dialogue that takes place between uh, David and Achish, right? Where David seems to be saying, come on, I can, I can fight with you guys. We don't know exactly what's behind all of that, but it's unusual to be sure. And it's followed by David and his men being sent packing by Achish. That was a close call. The world would say something like, whew, David, you, you dodged a bullet there. You got really, you got really lucky in that particular situation. Now, of course, in years to come, David would write the song that we open worship with, song one, Psalm 124, and, and talk of the providential care of God, a song that can be used in many circumstances and that ends with the words, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. David was delivered. David was set free as a bird, and it was all God. God did it all. All right, that's the account. 
That's the account of the two chapters that are before us. Now, back to the beginning, back to the question. What do you think of David? What do you think of him here? Cunning and crafty, creative in what he is doing, to be sure. But what do you think of him? What do you think of him with respect to righteousness? David said in 26, a verse I've, in chapter 26, a verse I've read for us, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Hear that again, David saying, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. That's an important principle of the word of God. It is the operating principle of the law of God. It is clear like Psalm 1. Right? Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. The Lord blesses the righteous. He knows the way of the righteous. He watches over the righteous. But the wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff that the Lord drives away. The wicked will be cut off. The wicked will perish. There's clarity here. And this theme, this principle, has been clear in Samuel. What we are seeing in Saul's life is the outworking of that very principle. God weighs actions and he responds accordingly. Now, a couple of times here as we are in the, in the wrap-up here, I'm going to refer back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's song, because it's, it's the key to unlocking Samuel. In, in verse 3 of Hannah's song, she says, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Okay, so God weighs actions. And on the whole, we see that in this book. But here, as we come towards the close, we are faced with a puzzle. And here's the puzzle. We would like to keep this clean. And here's the way we would keep it clean. David, righteous... Blessing, rise to kingship. Got it? David, righteous, blessing, rise to kingship. Flip it over. Saul, unrighteous or wicked, curses, fall. Okay, descent out of kingship. Okay, so, so that makes really sense, a lot of sense to us. That is neat and that is tidy and we like it and we don't want to deny the biblicity of it. But after a few moments of reflections on the chapters before us and on our own lives, we are faced with a problem. What about the simple fact that David isn't always righteous? That at times he can think, decide, and act foolishly, faithlessly, and wickedly. And what about the fact that that is true for us as well? That that can happen to us. Here, at the end of Samuel, we are faced with something else that is prominent in Hannah's song. In Hannah's song, in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2, she says this, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes the poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor up from the dust. He, he, he. The Lord does those things. And so here's the principle that I want to get at. Underneath 
the righteous or wicked actions of the kings of the earth lies the unshakable sovereign rule and will of the king of kings. There, there's something that is more bedrock than our actions being weighed by the Lord. Underneath of the biblical and essential principle and call to righteousness through the obedience of the law of God lies the sovereign grace and the electing love of God Almighty. Think of it this way. Who deserved deliverance by God from the Philistines in this circumstance? Who deserved it? David or Saul? Who you got? You got the guy who consulted Samuel through the medium of Endor, or the guy who sought refuge in Philistia, lied about what he was doing, and killed all the men and women in all of the raids that he took. Who you got? Who do you want to take and say, this is the righteous one of those two? Of course, the answer is neither. Neither. And that's what Hannah's song started with. Hannah's song begins, there is none holy like the Lord. There's none holy like the Lord. And that includes these two men, and that includes you and me. So why was David delivered? David escaped like a bird. I want to know why. Why does he get out? And Saul doesn't get out. Answer, biblically speaking, I think, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. That's a quote. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. It's from Romans chapter 9. One of the hardest chapters most of us have ever faced in Scripture. And I'll read some of the hardest verses that we've ever faced in Scripture. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. In other words, though and before the principle of the law could have impact on what was taking place, before righteousness or faithfulness or before any of that, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. David escapes this situation because God the Father said, I choose to put my love on him. And God the Son said, okay, I will die for him as the law-keeping, law-abiding king. I will offer my life in his place. And the Spirit said, and I will secure it on him. That's why David was delivered. That's the reason and no other reason in this particular circumstance. That is why David was delivered and that is why you are sitting here today as well, dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. And so this account becomes for us an opportunity to marvel at the marvelous grace of our loving Lord because David didn't deserve it. He got out of it. It was a mess. It was a mess that he had gotten himself into. He didn't deserve to get out of it, but God took him out of it. God did it. God saved him. So, 
Ask me, what do I think of David here? What do I think of him? I think he's my brother sinner, saved by the incredible grace of God, by which sometimes we just throw up our hands and go, Lord, why am I here? Why was I a guest? The account, the account that we've just read, it summons us to humility and to be able to sing, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. The account becomes, oddly enough, an invitation to those who think that their goodness will be sufficient, that their craftiness will be enough to avoid the snares of this world. No, no, you have to come just as you are, just as you are without a plea. The account is a warning that no earthly king will do. Only the righteous King Jesus. Only the king who was proclaimed to be innocent three times by another king, as David was proclaimed to be innocent, but King Jesus actually is innocent. David actually had pulled the wool over Achish's eyes. Achish kept saying, you're innocent, you're innocent, you're innocent. He wasn't. King Jesus was. His name alone. The account allows us to celebrate the freedom and the security we have in Christ because we are free and escaped as birds. And we can now sing like a bird. And so I think ultimately this account takes us to the verses that I put on the front of your bulletin that close that great section of Paul on salvation from well, from really the beginning of the book to chapter 11, but particularly from 9 to 11, in which Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who's, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for? From him and through him and to him, are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your incredible grace. We thank you for calling us to exercise our minds and our thoughts with respect to situations like this. We don't want to take any cheap shots at David that we wouldn't take upon ourselves as well. But in these stories, we see the depth of his sin, of our sin, and the incredible grace, the incredible mercy that you have shown to us despite our best efforts to find salvation in ways and people and places and things other than you. You were merciful to him and you have been merciful to us and none of us deserve it. We thank you for it. We rejoice in it. We sing in it. We rest in it. And Lord, if there are people here today who don't know that good salvation, that salvation that comes with nothing in my hands that I can bring, just clinging to your cross today, Lord, may today be the day where they see your salvation, where they escape like a bird from the pit of hell because of the work that you've done. Lord, help us to be humble, to rejoice in you, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name.